the comfort zone. Does anything good grow in there? Nothing grows in your comfort zone except love handles. I heard this during my morning workout today, and with all due respect, I have to disagree. For one, it assumes that most people have the ability to just cruise into an undiluted comfort zone completely free from anxiety, guilt, and shame. But as we talked about a couple newsletters ago, the entire concept of toxic productivity upends this notion. Many of us, myself included, fill our days with busyness and subconsciously avoid comfort zones and rest. This allows us to then evade the issues underpinning our chronic anxiety. Many of us also find it challenging to embrace rest and recovery, knowing that while we are in bed catching up on some me time, other wives, other husbands, other mothers, other fathers, other teachers, other nurses, other lawyers, other neighbors, other runners, other students are hustling, getting shit done, and getting ahead. And finally, it's comments like these, however well-intended, that shame us into walking away from anything that's too comfortable, from sweatpants to sandwiches. All of a sudden, it becomes all too easy to equate our worth with how much discomfort we are willing to endure. Now, I know what a lot of you are saying, well, then your comfort zone isn't really your comfort zone. But that's sort of my point. There is no true comfort zone for most people. Many of us are operating in some sort of hybrid between all-out pain and effortless ease, which means we are, in effect, going through our daily lives saddled with low to mid-level doses of chronic stress. Imagine how much more productive, purposeful, and prepared we might be if we could truly plumb the depths of comfort zones when such opportunities arise. Personally, I've rarely been able to enjoy any extended time in my comfort zone, and I think our inability to actually find and stay in that zone speaks to a much larger problem that comments like the one above unfortunately reinforce. The 80-20 rule. For those of you who are long-distance runners, you are probably familiar with the 80-20 rule. In fact, my good friend Matt Fitzgerald wrote one of my favorite running books of all time based upon this concept called 80-20 Running, and I'll include a link to the book in the show notes below. He has since built an entire brand called 80-20 Endurance after the immense success of his book. If you are unfamiliar with the 80-20 rule as applied to endurance running, the idea is pretty simple. Spend 80% of your running in a lower heart rate zone. Spend 20% of your running at a much higher heart rate zone. So here's a quote from Matt's recent blog. In the early 2000s, exercise physiologist Steven Seiler set out to quantify the training practices of elite endurance athletes in various disciplines in geographical locations. His main finding was that across the board, these athletes do about 80% of their training at low intensity and 20% at moderate to high intensity. But it's not as if they only started training this way the day before Seiler showed up with his calculator. As I point out in 80-20 running, four-time Boston Marathon and New York City Marathon winner Bill Rogers did about 80% of his training at low intensity in the 1970s, as did 800-meter and 1,500-meter Olympic gold medalist Peter Snell in the 1960s. As a high school runner in the 1980s, I was trained by coaches influenced 
by Snell's coach, the legendary Arthur Lidgard, who pioneered the high volume, mostly low intensity approach to endurance training we call 80-20 today. Quote by Matt Fitzgerald, it turns out that the combination of low intensity running punctuated by much briefer segments of high intensity running, similar to HIIT workouts, facilitates the maximization of an athlete's potential. I've always used the can I talk comfortably while I run test to determine whether I'm training at low intensity. According to Matt's book, in his experience as both a runner and a running coach, many athletes make the mistake of spending the vast majority of their time somewhere in the middle, not slow enough to reap the aerobic benefits of that comfort zone, and not intense enough to leverage the anaerobic gains of the discomfort zone. In fact, running in that middle zone is the least efficient way to achieve speed, strength, and endurance. Now, how many of you have spent too much of your time in that middle zone. Now, I'm not saying that you should be spending 80% of your day lolling about eating ice cream and scrolling through TikTok, but a minimum of 30% of your day should be composed of complete rest, sleep. In direct contradiction to the above comment, the following good things grow in that particular comfort zone. Strength and scope of your immune system, heart health, good mood, fitness capacity, memory, ability to focus, and productivity. Meditation can be as effective as a drug, literally. Now, I've been very open about my mental health struggles. I was prescribed anti-anxiety and antidepressants during college, law school, and most recently during my divorce. I hated them. Thus, when I started seeing a therapist in connection with my disordered eating in 2015, I made it very clear, no pharmaceuticals. Rachel, my therapist, is very patient, but she's also very practical. She said, fine, no drugs, then you better start meditating. I assumed that this was just a projection of her yoga-loving frou-frou vision of the world, but she pointed out that her advice was purely evidence-based. A research review published in JAMA Internal Medicine in January 2014 found meditation helpful for relieving anxiety, pain, and depression. And this is the kicker. For depression, meditation was about as effective as an antidepressant. Harvard Health Publishing. I found that to be completely astonishing. In fact, it appears that even a few minutes of daily meditation can enhance many of the aforementioned benefits of sleep. In sum, there are plenty of good things that can happen when we embrace the comfort zone. The discomfort zone. As Matt emphasizes repeatedly throughout his book, it's the combination between low-intensity plus high intensity that results in peak performance. In other words, you can't spend 100% of your training at low intensity and expect a PR on race day. Similarly, no one is suggesting that we can spend the rest of our lives avoiding discomfort and still expect to develop mental toughness, resourcefulness, and emotional endurance. The key then is striking the right balance between comfort and discomfort. 
What I find so interesting about the 80-20 rule in running is how the overwhelming majority of time is spent at that low intensity, when many of us probably assume that operating at high intensity for as long as our bodies allow is how to achieve optimal performance. This week, let's make it a goal to do the following. Honestly evaluate how much time you're spending in the middle zone. Spend at least five minutes a day practicing meditation. Sleep for at least eight hours a night. I know that's a tough one, but let's make it a goal. Perform one task that is decidedly outside of your comfort zone. What's my discomfort zone task? I'm going to be throwing a dinner party for firm colleagues this Saturday, and I'm going to be making a bunch of food from my own cookbook. Even though cooking for people is no longer outside of my comfort zone, socializing with them remains a challenge for me. I know this will be hard. It's going to be scary, stressful, and totally exhausting. But I also know it's good for me. What does your comfort zone look like? What's your discomfort zone task this week? So if you're new to this podcast slash newsletter, every week I take questions or submissions from the TKV community and provide my thoughts, advice, and experience on a particular issue. This week, Sienna asks, have you ever struggled with overreacting or reactivity? If so, what are some ways to help overcome it? I'm working on myself and my overreactivity and the choices I make under the influence of those emotions constantly threatens my career and relationships. Dear Sienna, yes, <laughs> I absolutely struggle with overreacting or reactivity. And if you're not new to the TKV community, you can probably attest to that. And in certain situations, yes, I have allowed my emotions to cloud my judgment and obstruct my communication. In short, allowing emotions to be in the driver's seat all the time, as you allude to, can delay or even derail our journeys. So you're definitely not alone. I started to realize that this was a problem for me uh, at funerals of all places. I often show zero emotion at funerals, particularly for those whom I've especially cherished in life. And it makes me feel terrible. Like I'm always wondering like, is everyone watching me and secretly judging me for failing to cry as if somehow my apparent apathy is a reflection of my heartlessness? And then what happens almost every single time is that right at the end, perhaps when everyone is leaving or even after the service has concluded and I'm in my own home or sometimes days later when I'm working on a brief at the office, all of a sudden with zero notice, an avalanche of grief will bury me right then and there. I used to think that these bouts of open and uncontrolled weeping were a sign of how in tune I am with my emotions, but it's actually the opposite. The truth is I have developed an aptitude for hiding from my emotions, particularly those that cause me pain. But eventually, my emotions, they always catch up to me when my guard is down, and I've been fatigued from the effort I'm using to suppress them. As a result, by the time they finally come up to the surface, I no longer have the resources and wherewithal to modulate an effective response to those feelings. 
And thus ensues the sometimes random sobbing and temper tantrums. My therapist has also described me as a 0 to 60 sort of person. I can be totally calm one minute and then ready to knock someone's lights out, figuratively, of course, the next. For instance, I recently visited the doctor's office for my annual physical and learned that I'd gained a non-insignificant amount of weight over the last six months. Now, despite knowing with my reasonable mind how absolutely terrible crash diets are for my health and body, there was an overwhelming urge to jump into some ridiculous diet and drop the weight as quickly as humanly possible. That's my emotional mind. This is a completely unreasonable reaction to putting on a little weight over winter, but the root of it is the same as what causes me to repress my grief when someone has died. Whether I'm repressing my emotions and saving them up for a rainy day, or flying off the handle instantly and making questionable decisions as a result, the objective is the same, to eliminate the anxiety caused by the emotions. Overreaction, or put another way, an inability to effectively manage your emotions is a function of being unwilling to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I I know we just spent 10 minutes talking about how important it is to embrace the comfort zone, but it's equally important to build emotional endurance. That means sitting in your feelings, good or bad, without acting on them. Luckily, Going from 0 to 60 is a habit, and therefore going from 0 to, say, a reasonable 15 is also a habit, one that you can develop by exercising the same behavior repeatedly. One of my favorite tips for a witness on the stand or during a deposition is always this. You are required to count to three in your head before you answer every single question, even the simple ones like state your name. Applying the same practice to those situations that you can probably already identify, Sienna, as things that tend to set you off can help you develop effective emotional management. So to continue using the example I referenced above, instead of immediately mapping out a plan to lose all the weight ASAP, I could do any one or all of the following. Write all of my feelings down in my journal. It's a safe space with zero judgment, so I can literally write down anything I want, including all my ugliest fears, i.e. that my parents will be ashamed of how big I am, Anthony will divorce me, and I will have to spend the rest of my life dieting. Call a friend who is good at listening to me without judging me, or, you know, judging me in a hilarious way that only makes me laugh and feel loved. Cry. Scream, punch my pillow, eat ice cream, go for a run, meditate, take a warm bath, play some music. In other words, do something that makes me feel a little better, even if it does absolutely nothing to eliminate the cause of my anxiety, i.e. my weight. Call my therapist. I'm not going to lie, Rachel has helped me pull myself off the ledge on so many occasions, but I had to build the habit of picking up the phone and actually going through with calling Rachel because otherwise, my natural impulse to simply move forward with jumping off the ledge would have drowned out the more reasonable idea of seeking help. The key here is neither to avoid nor act on your emotions, but simply to let them be what they are so you can properly evaluate them and then use your reasonable mind as opposed to your I need to fix this now mind to move forward. Of course, 
It goes without saying that another critical component to emotional management is stress management. Coming full circle, you should ask yourself whether you've been operating in that middle zone, i.e. with chronic levels of ineffective stress in your day-to-day. It is nearly impossible to react reasonably to a stress-inducing situation if your body is constantly in fight-or-flight mode. Wishing you all the best, Joanne. Live Q&A restream from TKV Meal Planner. So one of the coolest perks of being a TKV Meal Planner is the live content we provide on a monthly basis. This month, we held a live Q&A on going plant-based. Members were invited to submit questions in advance or ask them in the live chat feature. Here are some of the topics we covered. Eating plant-based on a budget. Meal prepping. How to make the transition to a plant-based diet less intimidating. How to go plant-based when your family doesn't support you. That's a tough one. Incorporating less processed foods into your diet. I will include a link to the restream of the live Q&A in the show notes below. Now, in addition to over 2,000 recipes, which I am continuing to add to, TKV Meal Planners get access to live cooking demonstrations, monthly newsletters, and food coaches. In the next several weeks, we'll be rolling out even more perks for our members. The following are the recipes I added this week to the TKV Meal Planner. The watermelon kimchi, so good. Sloppy kimbap, one of my favorites. And kale, kali, and kimchi nachos. That was such a hit with my non-vegan family members. Literally, it was gone in five minutes. I was actually kind of mad that I didn't get to eat more. If you haven't already joined the TKV Meal Planner, what the heck are you waiting for? I'm going to include a link to the TKV Meal Planner in the show notes below. Announcements. Get your tickets to my Boston book signing. It is official. I know I've been teasing this for weeks. My next book event is scheduled for May 17th, 2022 with WBUR events. You can secure your spot now as seating is limited. Link to buy your tickets in the show notes below. LA Times Festival of Books. I will be doing a live cooking demonstration on April 23rd at USC's campus as part of this really, really cool book festival. Tickets will go on sale on April 17th, so keep your eyes peeled for more details soon. If you are a student at USC, make sure to check out the LA Times Festival of Books. Vegan Women's Summit, or VWS. I am so honored, excited, and thrilled to be a speaker in this year's VWS. I will be talking about feminism, intersectional veganism, and all those things that are so important to leading a more compassionate and empowered life. If you haven't purchased your tickets yet, it's not too late. I will include a link to buy your tickets in the show notes below. Parting thoughts. Sometimes... We have to fake it till we make it. I remember like when I was really young, I used to watch The Apprentice and I really loved the season with Martha Stewart. And I remember that she fired someone, this was early on in the season because they used this aphorism to describe their approach to a specific challenge. You gotta fake it till you make it. 
And to this day, I kind of disagree with Martha Stewart's self-righteous, nope, you have to make it till you make it view of the world. I recently listened to another killer episode on the Ritual podcast, during which Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about how we need to rethink the order of action versus emotion. Sometimes behavior can dictate our feelings instead of the other way around. Have you ever noticed that the simple act of smiling, even when you don't feel like it, can actually make you feel a little better? You should try it. In writing these newsletters every week, I challenge myself to share with you not just my experiences, but my thoughts on how to achieve a more purpose-driven life. The truth is, I often have trouble practicing what I preach. I'm not always good at taking a beat to sit in my emotions before reacting. I'm awful at sticking to a commitment to meditate, and even when I do, I have a hard time sitting still for even five minutes, and I consistently find excuses for cutting my sleep short. So there's a part of me that's tempted to call these newsletters faking it. Be that as it may, I know that writing all of these things down, sharing them with you, forces me to face truths in the same way that smiling forces my body to reckon with joy. So, in case you need to hear it, go ahead, fake it till you make it. Joanne.